If you have your Bibles tonight, would you turn them to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 19. This evening, very familiar portion of scripture. Many of you have probably heard many times, but um, I really have felt a burden lately to just preach on the resilience of the church and God's plan for the church. You know, we know the church is the focus of Jesus' affections. When Paul was writing about marriage in Ephesians 5, he said, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And so we see that Jesus doesn't just love us as individuals, which he does. He loves each and every person as an individual. But there's something about the gathered believers that really draws his affection and his love. They are, we are his bride. You know, when Jesus speaks to uh, the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he doesn't just speak just to individuals. There's a place in the Bible where he speaks to individuals. But most of the time he speaks to a church, to the church which is at Corinth. To the church which is at Galatia, which is the church is at Colossae, you know. So uh, God speaks to the church throughout the New Testament. The church is the focus of his direction, his instruction, his correction, and his affection. And so this is the focus of God's attention. And I want to just, you know, renew this truth and affirm this truth uh, that it's not lost on us. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, talk about Matthew 16, preach on Matthew 16, 13 through 19. This is the first place in the Bible where the word church is mentioned, and it's mentioned by Jesus himself. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want to begin tonight and talk about the prominence of the church as a focus in Scripture. In our text, Jesus reveals that his plan for the world would be something called the church. And if you know anything about the word church, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It actually means people called out from the world and to God, the outcome being the church, the mystical body of Christ, the, the universal total body of believers whom God calls out from the world and into his eternal kingdom. And so when we talk about the church, we're talking about a gathered people, whether you're talking about a gathered people here in Athens, Georgia tonight, or you're talking about a gathered, uh, a body of 
believers that is, that is worldwide. It is those who are called out as a group to be his bride. And so, you know, this is an exalted view. Jesus said that he's going to accomplish his work in the earth, amen, through the church, that he was going to build something called the church. That's the focus of his attention. That's the focus of his affection. I mentioned this scripture, I believe, Sunday morning during the Sunday school, but in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the apostle Paul spoke of the church, and he says, and he, this is God putting all things under Jesus' feet. He says that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, God is saying is that the church is the fullness. He's the body. We are the body of Christ. And it's what God has put on display as a representation of himself on the earth. We are the body of Christ. I could have delved into 1 Corinthians 12, where we could have done a full study on the body of Christ and, and different things. I didn't want to get kind of sidetracked with that. But I want you to see tonight is that the church is God's plan of redemption in the earth. It is God's plan, amen, it's his focus, uh, is prominent in his uh, heart and mind uh, and should be prominent in our heart and mind also. Mentioned Sunday morning about parachurch organizations and I don't want to go on another rant about that. But, uh, you know, people, they focus on marriage and family or feeding the hungry or medical missions and these are all valid things. Uh, uh, We have people in our fellowship that do these things and they're valid, they serve a purpose. But listen, world evangelism will by and large be accomplished through the local church. That was what uh, Pastor Mitchell had the vision for. If you've been following the Sunday school at all, one of the things that God began to show him was that Jesus uh, wanted to fulfill the Great Commission through the local church. And that's God's plan, that he builds the church, uh, sends out workers, disciples, uh, amen, to pastor in other cities, uh, and that's accomplished through the church. And so these other things are valid. They're good. Uh, I've ordered resources from Focus on the Family. They have good stuff on raising children and marriages and different things you can get from them. And all these institutions, uh, Samaritan's Purse, all these different things are good things, Uh, uh, you know, very um, dedicated organizations we've had. Uh, people that we knew in Tucson that went on some of those missions and great thing, pray with people while they're there. But listen, the main focus of world evangelism is going to be accomplished through the church of Jesus Christ. When Paul was instructing and training Timothy, one of the things he focused on was the priority or the prominence of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, he said, these things I write to you. Sorry, I gave you the wrong scripture up there. Oh, you guys got it. Hallelujah. Send a correction. It's up there. Praise God. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to, you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so, you know, he's saying that these are the church is to be the pillar. In other words, it's the representation. If you look at pillars in the Bible, they were an outward representation of the glory of a building. When Solomon 
was building the glorious temple in his day in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 through 17, or 2 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 3, 15 through 17. He said, also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high. That's almost 53 feet. It's 52 and a half feet. So these pillars are 52 and a half feet tall. And the capital that was on top of each of them was five cubits. Uh, and he made wreaths of chain work in the, as in the inner sanctuary. And he put them on top of the pillars. Uh, and he made 100 pomegranates uh, and put them on the wreaths of the chain work. Uh, then he set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Uh, and he called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, uh, and the other name on the one on the left, Boaz. And so my point in reading all this uh, is that they made these pillars to be a representation of the glory of God. And when Paul says that the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so God has set his church to be a representation of his glory, amen, to a lost and dying world. Now, we fall short. Many times there's always criticisms of, well, you know, the church did this to me and that church. And man, you know, hey, the problem, with, the problem with churches is it's got people in them, you know? That's, that's the problem. I remember Glenn Cluck, uh, Pastor Glenn Cluck, he said, you know, he said, man, if it wasn't for people, we could have revival. But, you know, you can't have revival without people, right? And he said that as a joke, you know, but the thing is, is that, uh, you know, we're all flawed human beings, and people look at the church like we're supposed to be already glorified. We're supposed to be already be, uh, you know, at this place where we're just walking around with halos and three feet off the ground. That's not the case. We're all a work in progress. We're all sinners in the process of being saved day by day. It's like people say, well, I don't want to go to church. There's too many hypocrites. Well, two, two answers to that question is, where else should a hypocrite be? You know, where else is the hypocrite going to hear preaching and maybe have the hope to change? In church. That's where a hypocrite needs to be. Number two is, you know what? We've always got room for one more hypocrite. So come on down because uh, if you think you're not a hypocrite, you know, you've arrived to the stage of, I'm not a hypocrite about anything. The church will never be out, become outdated. There was a move in talk in recent years, especially around COVID, that church attendance and, and, and church had kind of lost its relevance. And, and there were several uh, people that began to miss it. We're just going to, I think church is kind of, all these articles by these Christian leaders, I think church is moving to more of an online thing. Well, good luck with that. Because, you know, relationships online are easy, are easy to navigate. And you can, you know, you can display yourself in a certain way. There's old country songs. I, I look a lot better online. And he talked about the guy living in his mom's basement. And he's, and he's you know, kind of uh, uh, not really in shape. But, but online, he's, you know, he's got these pictures of himself. And this, uh, it's kind of a funny country song. But, uh, you know, we can portray something online that we're not really in, in, in real life. But I would tell you that gathering together as God's people will never become outdated. There may be seasons where, you know, government cracks down because of some kind of pandemic, and that's understandable if the case is necessary. But in the last days, the church will not have a diminished role, but it will have an even greater role in the last days. That's God's plan for the church. 
In Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so it's talking about in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. And it says, and shall be exalted above the hills. In other words, God says, I'm going to put the church in a prominent place in society in the last days. This scripture is repeated in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It's almost word for word. You can read it on your own. But twice in scripture, God says, in the last days, my house is not going to become diminished. It's going to have an even greater role in the last days. It's not going to be outdated. It's not just going to move this online-only thing. But people are going to flow, it says, uh, to the house of God. And people, it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And they'll say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. And so there's going to be a hunger in the last days for real truth. There's going to be a hunger in the last days for something that goes beyond the surface of everything that the world has to offer. I was listening to a, a book on prayer. I was talking about that, scrape, uh, that great scripture in John chapter 7. It's all our flyers. It says that uh, in the last day of the feast, Jesus said, uh, uh, He that comes to me will, 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 will drink living waters, will, 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 will flow through him. And so Jesus, you know, spoke those words, and he spoke those words on the last day of the feast. Well, the last day of the feast, people have been drinking and eating for several days. So who's thirsty after a feast? If any man thirsts, let him come to me. Who would be thirsty after the last day of a feast? It's like, it's like the last day of a party. Who would be thirsty and what he's saying is that if everything you've partaken of in the world and in regular religion has left you empty, you can come to me, the source of truth, and find refreshing in your soul. You can, you can quench that thirst in you. And that's what makes that scripture more pow most powerful is that on the last day of the feast, and so it would be one thing to say it on the first day of the feast because people are probably hungry and thirsty. But he said that after they've already, you know, partied, after they've already feasted all those days, uh, is anyone thirsty? You've taken all this in. You've, you know, explored all these things. Is anyone thirsty? God's working in his church has not been hindered by the condition of the world in the last days. When, when God spoke of his church, speaks of his church in this setting, it's always in the realm of his potential found in the church. In Ephesians 3, 20, 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so he's talking about uh, who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. What does it say at the end? That to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ 
to all generations forever and ever. That God's glory is going to rest in his church. Not that we don't experience it in our normal, everyday, personal lives. But he's saying, listen, the church is going to be the focus of my attention in the last days. The church will never become outdated. And it will always prevail. Which leads me to my next point, the prevailing of the church. In our text... Jesus gives us the promise of his protection and prevailing of the church. In verse 18, he says, And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. And so God has promised his protection, and the church will prevail through any circumstance. There's a scripture I was going to read in my last point, but in Isaiah 54, 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. See, Jesus gives a promise to the church that he doesn't give to any other institution or nation. He doesn't promise that governments will not be defeated, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the government. How many know governments have risen and fallen? There's a great Roman government, the rise and fall of the Roman government, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of a, you know, Hitler and everything he tried to do. How many know leaders rise and fall? Governments rise and fall. Nations rise and fall. There are nations that existed at one time that no longer exist. But Jesus said no matter what kind of assault comes against his church... At some point, he's going to protect it. Now, obviously, churches, local churches may, you know, uh, cease to exist. Uh, but talking about his church will always prevail. He's promised this. And let me just kind of take a, uh, a tributary here, you know, on the side. We're in verse uh, 18, where we're... Uh, let me go back to verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. And so what happened when, when Peter said this? Uh, Jesus said, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And what does he mean? It's the rock of revelation that knowing who Jesus is. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that? You're Jesus, the son of God. You know what? This is what I'm going to build my church on. It's people who have the revelation that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the answer for life. And as a result of that, what happens? He changes his name from Simon to Peter. And so as we believe in who Jesus is, uh, it changes who we are. That's a different sermon, but no extra charge for that. Hallelujah. But he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's different opinions and interpretations of what gates mean here as it's described as the gates of hell. One interpretation is that gates are strategies against the church. And so this comes from the tradition of important meetings and discussions that took place at the gates of a city in the Bible. 
There's a famous uh, uh, chapter in Proverbs 31 of the virtuous woman. In Proverbs 31, 23, it says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So it talks about a power group, a, a, a group where decisions are made, leaders of the people. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. And so one interpretation of the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is that this is the place of strategy and judgment. How many know the devil is always strategizing against the church? There are demonic forces, principalities, and powers uh, that are always uh, uh, ordering themselves and gathering themselves against the church to assault the church. Government, the media, Hollywood, the college campus, these are decision places. These are, these are places where leaders meet and they plot, the, uh, you know, they plot the ruling of the world and all kinds of things, the governing of the world. And he says sometimes it's in these gates uh, that their target becomes the church. And maybe you know the church has been targeted by all these institutions. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. They're not going to win. My church is always going to stand. You know, the church is the object of God's protection and preservation. This is one reason why we come and we worship God. We feel a peace. We feel a weight lifted. We step into a place that is under the sovereign protection of, and preservation of God. That's why there's peace in the house of God. Now, obviously, we come to church in different conditions, and not all of us leave, you know, uh, you know totally uh, with all of our problems solved. But at the same time, you have to admit that when you come into the house of God, and Wednesday night, your head's spinning, you enter into worship and praise and, and hear the word of God. There's something that you're in a place where God begins to work in your life because this is the place of his prominence and protection, his preservation. This is why Psalms often describes the house of God as a sanctuary or a refuge. We have wildlife sanctuaries and refuges for protection of, of animals and wildlife. And this is how Scripture describes a, God's house. Is it's a place, it's a sanctuary, a place of protection, a place of preservation. A couple more thoughts along this line as far as the gates being strategies against the church is that it's also the strategy of judgment against the church, the words spoken against the church. And I just thought of the enemy in Revelation 12, 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. How I many you know that the devil is the accuser of the brethren? And he's the accuser of the church. And so God says that, you know, the strategies of hell, the words of hell, will not take my church out. No matter how much it's criticized, no matter how much it's mocked by this society, God has placed his sovereign protection around his church. It will always exist. 
We will fight battles. Uh, there are spiritual battles. The Bible talks about it. We wrestle against principalities and powers. Uh, there's a very real spiritual warfare that takes place. Uh, but God says, uh, I put my protection, and all the strategies of hell are not going to succeed against the church. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. The next interpretation of gates is strongholds of a city that must be broken down in order to conquer that city. And so this gives us the interpretation of a church that's not just a sanctuary or a refuge, but it's also an advancing army storming the gates of hell. So it, it, it gives us the understanding that perhaps uh, Jesus meant that as the church advances... The strongholds of hell that keep people captive. These strongholds can be broken. These strongholds of, of Satan. How many know people have gates and strongholds that keep them bound, uh, that keep them away from Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible says as we evangelize uh, that we're able to confront those strongholds. Uh, the word of God has power, amen, to break those strongholds and bars in people and win them to Jesus Christ and freedom and liberty. There's a story of Samson in Judges 16, verse 3, just to give you a picture. It says, And Samson lay low, low till midnight. When he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two go gateposts pulled them up by a bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And so here's Samson storming the gate of the city and tearing down the gates of that city. The protection of that city. All throughout the Bible, you can read about gates and, and walls and bars that, that protect the city. How they would, you know, put, uh, uh, put things to uh, protect that city. And God says, listen, uh, you know, a, a city could be a person that's bound in some kind of habit or people that are bound in, in some kind of a addiction. He says, you know what? The word of God has the power and the church, the advancing church has the power that, you know what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That we can see people one to Jesus Christ. We can see people come out of bondage. We can see pe people changed by the transforming power of God. This is what gives the church confidence to evangelize. God's promise of victory as we attempt to take ground for his kingdom. And let's, let's face it, you know, evangelism is spiritual warfare. You know, any, any game day outreach, you can sense that, that there's spiritual warfare, there's criticism, there's, a, there's pushback from people. And Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 through 18, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So it talks about the church is going to have power, amen, to cast out, excuse me, cast out demons, uh, to lay hands on the sick, to see people healed. Uh, God has placed his power in his church. In verse 19 of our text, uh, Jesus said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, 
And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I, don't, I have to confess, I don't totally understand what he means by that. But I think I get the big picture is that we're able to take, amen, the spiritual power that we receive here on earth and employ, uh, you know, in, in the church and in our relationship with God and employ it against the enemy. That we can bind things, uh, we can bind spiritual forces that are attacking people, we can bind strategies of hell that attack people, and we can overcome them through the power of God. Jesus is giving this promise, he's, he's speaking this out, hey listen, I'm going to give you power to operate in the earth. Finally, I want to look at the prize of the church. And that is that we are under God's watchful eye and protection and we are prominent because we are the bride for his son. Again, in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus died for you as an individual. He saw your sin But you know, there is a special place in the heart of Jesus for the called out ones. There's there's a dynamic that happens and and there's a love that Jesus has that is shown in his church, in the called out assembly that you won't experience anywhere else. Now you can, I experience the love of God in my personal prayer when I'm alone. I'm not saying that's, that's not true. But I'm saying there's a dimension in the church that you won't find anywhere else. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 says, And I heard as it were the voice, heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And the ending point of Revelation is all about Jesus getting his bride. And you know, the great thing about that, it's hard for us to imagine this sometimes, but Jesus is more excited or expectant about getting us as we are about him. And we think about that because we think of who we are, our flaws. We think about our shortcomings. We, well, I'm, you know, I don't know why I would be the object of God's attention. I don't know why I would be the object of God's affection, his bride. I don't know why he would think something great, but it's something about he paid the price for his church. See, the blood of Jesus purchased this assembly tonight. This would not be happening. People gathered here on Olympic Drive in Athens, Georgia, would not be happening without the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He died for you as an individual, but he died for this group tonight. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5 says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. 
You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, which actually means married, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so Jesus talks about, or the Bible here talks about as Jesus sees his bride, he rejoices over getting his bride. As he sees the last days, amen, as he, he knows when the last days are, it says no man knows the exact time or, of his return, only his father. But as he sees uh, uh, prophetic things coming to pass, uh, we, there's an expectancy rising not only in us, where even so, come Lord Jesus, come shortly, Lord Jesus. But there's expectancy in him. Have you ever thought about that? There's expectancy in God about getting you and I. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your, shall your God rejoice over you. You know, there's going to come a day where we're going to get into heaven. We're going to be really thankful. Oh, thank you, God, I made it. Thank you, God, you got me here. But there's also going to be him full of joy at seeing us. That gets me excited. You know, it'd be one thing to come to heaven and say, man, I'm glad I made it. And God just be saying, yeah, I'm kind of surprised myself, you know. That wouldn't be too much fun, you know. But to see him excited, that I'm excited about seeing him, he's excited about seeing me. Okay, that gets me excited. I'm sorry, that's, that's a big buzzkill for you. But the thought that God could get excited about his church, about getting, I'm going to get my church soon. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so you saw your God rejoice. I'm going to get my bride. You know, you see in weddings, uh, you see that bride walking down the aisle. Man, the groom's just like, wow, here she comes. That's, what, that's the way Jesus feels about you. Final scripture. The Bible says that we actually have a better promise as a church than one of, you know, this is talking about Zion or Jerusalem. But listen, every promise that God gave to Israel, God gave to the church. And so in Hebrews 12, it kind of paints us in a different picture. I'm going to read verses 18 and 22 through 24. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched to and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest. So he's talking about, you haven't come to Mount Zion, the physical Mount Zion. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so God talks about our destiny as the church is even greater than the destiny of Israel and Mount Zion and Jerusalem. That's our destiny. He says, you haven't come to Mount Zion, but to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. It's your names are written down in heaven. And so my desire tonight, amen, is just to cause you maybe just to take a moment and re really understand and grasp the glory of the church. 
with all of its flaws, with all of its criticism, with all of its problems within. Criticism within. This is the church that Jesus shed his blood for and that he has promised his protection that the gates of hell will not prevail. It's the strategies of the enemy against us or as we advance as an army that, that it's the strategies of the enemy that has people. He says, they're not going to win. My church will win. We're the winners, folks. Hallelujah. We win in the end. We have different, you know, we may lose a couple of battles, but we're going to win the war because Jesus has proclaimed it in Scripture. One, one more time. Verse 18. And I also say that you are Peter on this rock. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what happens, he says, I'm going to have a church. I'm going to have a people. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to preserve them. They're going to be prominent in my mind, in my heart. In the end, I'm going to get them and take them to heaven. They're going to reign with me throughout eternity. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads tonight. Our heads are bowed this evening. Appreciate you all tonight as the church. Church is a miracle. The church is a miracle. This gathered people tonight from all different walks of life, different races, different economical conditions, different ages, uh, different uh, preferences, uh, all gathered in one building. Why? Because we have a common Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus will not be put into a box that he's able to minister to different people on their level. He's able to take the word of God and take it like, like David throwing Samson's stone and have him hit right where it needs to hit. He's able to meet, he's able to minister a word to a young person that's seeking kind of some kind of relief from anxiety or some kind of a reality in their in their battles of their mind. He's able to reach that older person who's uh, down the road in life. He's able to reach that person that, that maybe is successful and doing very well and, and still have them uh, in, you know, encounter him in a real way. Zacchaeus was a successful man. As I mentioned in the offering, Jesus went to his house and met with him and, and saved him and touched him and, and he, he loved him. God loves everybody from every walk of life, whether you be rich, poor, young, old. God doesn't care. There's something about the miracle of the church that gathers people from all walks of life and God displays his glory in our midst. What a miracle that is. What other reason would we be gathered together? You know, there's car clubs, there's, you know, sports clubs and different things where people gather, but they're all alike. They all have the same interests. We all have different interests, uh, different backgrounds, different hurts, pains, uh, different worries and fears. Uh, but God brings us all into his house to minister to us uh, because we are the miracle of the church. And we are the under the watchful eye of his protection and his ministering in our lives. Amen. If you're here tonight and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, perhaps tonight you're here tonight, you're not born again, or 
Maybe you're backslidden this evening and you need a touch of God in your life today tonight. You need deliverance. You need salvation. You need to be forgiven. And God brought you here tonight, amen, to save you, to deliver you, help you. I'm here to tell you that no matter what you're facing, you may have bars. You may have habits and different things that you're fighting. You don't know how you're going to do it. Listen, the gates of hell cannot prevail against them. If you'll put yourself, if you'll plant yourself in the church, at some point, those bars, those, uh, uh, those bondages will begin to break down and God will begin to help you because you're in an environment where God says those things cannot rule or reign because they will not prevail against you. First step you need to make, though, is a step of repentance, saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I need to get right with you. If you're here tonight, unsaved or backslidden, you need Christ. Slip up your hand, put it right back down. Say, yes, that's me. I really need God tonight. Would there be one here tonight within the sound of my voice? Hallelujah. Church, tonight, I, I just had this burden for us to just realize the glory of God. Listen, churches have problems. Churches have issues. We're not exempt from that. But you know what? It's good to see the glory of the church. And, and every once in a while... You mentioned buzzard Christians on Sunday morning. Don't just see what's wrong, but see the good things that God is doing. And, and have, a, have an eye. You know what, God, you, have, you are doing such a powerful work in our midst. And, and God, we have problems, we have issues, and we have things we need to deal with. But you know what, God, I'm so glad to be a part of this glorious thing that you've called the church and that you're going to build this thing. That We don't have to build it. God builds it. We have to obey him in our lives. We have to cooperate with him. We have to evangelize. We have to pray. We have to do all those things. But you know what? Jesus is the builder of the church. Jesus can add to the church. Jesus can discipline the church. Jesus can do all those things because he is the head of the church. And as we place ourselves under him, and, and by doing that, you know, when you love the church... You're loving something that Jesus loves. And so you put yourself in good relationship with him. When you're speaking good things about his church, when you are, uh, you know, when, when you are ministering to his church in any capacity, you're putting yourself in a place where you, you are a co-laborer with Jesus Christ and you're putting yourself close to his heart because this because church is close to the heart of God. It's close to the heart of Jesus Christ. We are his bride. And that's one thing I realized many years ago is that as I minister to his church, God's going to help me. He's going to draw close to me. As that's my heart. As I pray for the church, as I minister to the church, as I do what I can to serve the church, Jesus is going to help me because it's close to his heart. And I'm putting myself on his side. Amen. We're going to stand this evening. These altars are open. If you'd like to come and pray, the Lord help you tonight. Amen.